You guys can be seated. If you guys are a note taker, this is in the app. If you're a part of the church here, you know we have an app. Pastor Joey just said something about that. You can download the app. All the notes are in it already. They're right in a little section called notes because we're super creative, right? <laughs> Main idea for today is this, re being religious on the outside. So God is calling his people to learn what it really means to repent and live as true followers of the living God. Anything else is unacceptable. What does it mean for us as followers of Jesus to live as the people of God? Now, let's just make some assumptions. We're here. It's Super Bowl Sunday. We're here in church. You know, this church is two-thirds as full as it might normally be. I'm just going to take a swing and say it's either the Super Bowl or the rain, right? One of those reasons that there are people sitting it out and doing that. And so I'm going I'm to believe you braved the rain and that you set your DVR and that you're here because you're serious about Jesus, right? This is still aimed at us. This is still God's word to us and saying, listen, the common acceptable version of faith today is unacceptable. That's what he's saying to Isaiah, through Isaiah, to the people of God 2,700 plus years ago. So hear this written to them, but understand this letter with this strength, with this, these words could be written to us today as if it were written to Western American Christianity today. And we need to hear it with that level of chastisement and grace. Verse 1, it says this, The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. So here's, here's, again, this has been called by many religious scholars throughout 2,000 years of church history, has been called the fifth gospel. Here's why. It aims at people that call themselves followers. It aims at them, but it calls them to repent and believe in a savior. And so understand Isaiah, though written seven plus hundred years before Jesus, preaches Jesus more clearly than I think anything else in all of the Old Testament and equally as clearly as the Gospels. So it's going to call Judah and Israel, the northern and southern kingdoms the, uh, the, that are supposed to be the Jewish nation, they're supposed to be followers of God. It is calling them to repentance. Now, here's the setting. In the, in the, in the setting of these four kings, and so there's a span of about maybe... 750 BC to right around 700 BC. Somewhere around in there is when Isaiah puts together and it says this is Isaiah's vision. And so it's not visions, plural. This is the collective work of Isaiah's prophetic ministry. And so God, now, a prophet, now just let's, let's, let's make sure we're clear on our terms. A prophet is this. A prophet is someone who speaks God's words on behalf of God with God's authority. Okay. It's what a prophet is. He speaks into the culture. He speaks into modern day settings. The vast majority of everything that prophets say were meant in real time for the hearers, not meant as something that would come. Now, there's parts of that clearly as Isaiah preaches, Jesus proclaims a Messiah to come. Yes, that was future telling, if you will. But the vast majority, 90 plus percent of everything Isaiah says is meant for them in that moment. We hear the word prophet, we hear Old Testament prophecy, and we think of one of two things. Things that they said about the future that have already happened in Christ or things that will still happen. What we need to hear is these are about things that are happening right now. Not times, not wars, not king, just the state of the church right now. Just as he was speaking to the people of faith right then. And so 
Through this era, Isaiah is speaking to them, and he is, he is speaking on behalf of God, and he writes this very long vision of what is taking place, of what is taking place. Verse 2, he says this: Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. God is going to speak right now as a father. Some of you are parents, but all of us understand what it looks like to be a parent. And so imagine now God is speaking with this fatherly tone, but he's speaking to children who have gone astray, children who are denying him, children who are disobedient, children who are shaming their families, shaming their God, children of God. So he loves them, but he is calling, this is not how I've raised you to be. And he is speaking to them with that brokenhearted, somewhat angry father. He is speaking through a tone of grace. We're going we're to see little subtle things, like when he says, ah, oh, Judah and Israel. Like he's, he's pouring out his heart. His heart is broken for the people. When he speaks in tones of judgment, he is calling them to repentance. We're going to see that each time he speaks out, each strong word that he says, each thing that he accuses them of, he then turns and calls them to return to him. And so if this lands at all with any of us, we need to hear this. Whatever it is that we are called to take away from this, whatever we are called to turn away from, whatever we are called to change, God is speaking as a father who is saying, listen, there is time to return. That whatever you are convicted of to be different, to see change, to be transformed in, he's saying, I have provided a way back. And there's a choice, if you will, before us. That there's a choice to continue living the way we are in mediocrity of faith at best. Or there is an option to return to truly worship the God who loves us. This is the tone in which he speaks with him. He says, children I have reared up and I brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 3, the ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Here's what he says to an unrepentant nation. Here's what he says to an unrepentant people who profess to believe in him, but their lives say otherwise. He says, you are dumber than farm animals. Right? That's what he said, like a donkey even knows where to lay down. A do they, they know where to come home and be fed. And the implication is, but you don't. The contrast of people following God and farm animals cannot be a flattering one, right? Like there's no way that's a good thing. And that is, as God says, listen, children I've reared up, but they've rebelled. Even animals know what's best for them and they return to it. The implication is, I am what's best for you. My ways are what's best for you. But in your ignorance, you keep running the other direction. In your stubbornness, you run the other direction. That's what God is saying. Verse 4, he says this, oh, sinful nation. Say, listen, oh, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. See, he, you can hear in these words, sometimes he's just like, ah, oh, like my heart breaks 
There's a peace of God, and if you're a parent, you understand there's a peace that is angry, and there's a peace that is brokenhearted. There's, there's a peace that is loving and concerned and genuine and merciful, and there's another side that say, listen, you deserve what you get coming, what you have coming to you. Like, you deserve the penalty of your choices. But I love you. And his heart just lays bare in these opening words of Isaiah. He talks about people being estranged. Uh, just quick definition. If you, it, we all kind of use the word estranged. We hear it, and people estranged from their parents or whatever it might be. It says, no longer close or affectionate, alienated. Here's the implication of this word. There are a people who are at one time close and are no longer close or affectionate. They are alienated from God. He's saying, listen, at one time, you were near to me. And now, we are no longer close, we are no longer affectionate, and you have alienated yourself from me. Hear the condition of people who profess to be followers of God, who, modern-day context, profess to be Christians. And hear, hear the implication of this. Hear what he is outlining as he said this. And he says this, and again, I want you to balance all the emotions in tension. The anger, the love, the judgment, the mercy, the outlining of sins done and rebellion done, and the desire to restore and redeem all of us. Hold all that in tension. And again, if you're a parent, maybe this makes a lot of sense to you. Maybe you felt these things. I know as a son, I have caused these feelings in my dad, in my mom, in my parents in general, that have caused all those tensions to be in play, that, that love and yet anger and frustration and yet desire, that, that listen, we, this isn't how you were raised. Verse 5, it says, why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole to foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds, they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. So here's the question. Why do you continue to rebel so much? And now listen, you have to understand Isaiah written in the context, other prophets are speaking simultaneously. Others are calling out to the people and telling them the same thing. And here's the, if there's one thing that Isaiah is about, it's about this. Either the repent or I'm going to lift my hand off you and the nations around you are going to surround you, conquer you and enslave you. The only thing keeping you as a nation right now is me. God says, my hand keeping them from you. And he is warning them of impending doom. And the doom isn't, listen, these people are, he said, I'm going to let them do it. In fact, I'm going to send them to wipe you out because you're not listening. And so so year after year, prophet after prophet, generation after generation, the call is, come back, return to me. He says, why? Why will you be struck down? Why are you forcing this? And then he gives this image of someone beaten so badly, they are hardly recognizable. One modern-day commentary writer in Nashville, his name is Ray Ortland. he describes the scene in Rocky. You guys have seen the Rocky movies, right? Especially in the opening early Rockies, one and two, like he's just so beaten that you're just like, man, why don't you stop? Like, quit, would you already, right? 
What God is saying is, listen, why do you continue to take a beating? Why do you continue? You can stop this. Like, you can tap out. All you got to do is return to me. Why do you insist on letting this be your life? Verse 7, he says, your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. And your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. The setting in Judah and, and Israel right now, and Israel's the northern kingdom, Judah's the southern kingdom, right? And the way they are right now is they're kind of regaining prominence. They had been, they'd been, they'd lost some land to outsiders, they had lost their prominence, they had lost some of their wealth, and it had returned to them, and so they're kind of on an upswing right now. And so they're, they're kind of a financially wealthy country, they're kind of in a good place. And yet God has been saying, listen, the blessing that you have is from me, and yet you're wandering away from me. And the call to them is, listen, your blessing comes from me. Return to me, or I'm going to take my hand off you. They're going to conquer you. They're going to enslave you, which, as you know, it happens. They don't listen. That ought to be a warning to us. Like, okay, we should listen, right? Like other people have gone before us and been hard-hearted and hard-headed and stiff-necked and all the other images that this book will use, and they didn't listen, and God has lifted his hand off them. We can hear that as a church. We can hear that as a nation. We can hear that as a people group. We can hear that as an era. We can hear it however we want, but the same call goes to us. You once were close, and yet now you've wandered away. But you're welcome to return. Why are you not listening? And then he says, your city is like it's been destroyed by fire. And here's the, here's the contrast you have to, the original hearer, the, the intended audience needed to hear. I get that you feel like you're on the top of your game. From my perspective, you're wrecked. Because I see your spiritual condition. I see the things you're trusting in. I see the things you don't see. I see what outsiders are already doing to you. He says, let me, even though you trust in the things, you trust in the money you have, you trust in the security of your job or your home or your family or the crops that you grow or the, whatever this is that they're talking about, even though you feel you're good. Let me tell you, you're not. If you're a note taker, I want to give you this verse and then, a, and then a note below it. Jesus says the same thing to a church in Revelation 3. He says, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. He says, I get it. You think you're rich. I'm telling you, you're poor. I get it, you think you have all these fine clothes. I'm saying you're wretched and naked. I get it, you think you can see. I'm telling you, you're blind. That's what he's saying to the people 2,700 and something years ago that Isaiah is speaking to. This is because they're living in a spiritual mediocrity. God reveals how he sees humanity. Often, the faith of people is shaped more by culture than by truly living lives of worship that the mediocre seems good. God detests the lukewarm and desires true worship. Here's what he's saying. You've allowed the outside to define what worship looks like. In our, in our modern day setting, we've allowed the rest of the country, the rest of the world to define what it looks like to be worshipers of God. We've allowed culture to creep in and be syncretistic and define what worship of God looks like. And so as long as we think we're a little different than this, we think we're doing okay. 
Well, we're not like this. We're a little different, but not, not what God calls us to. God says, listen, I have set before you what true worship means. I have set that before you, and it's never changed. No matter what happens in the world, I have set this before you, and you are to live to this, not let it be watered down by the community that you live in. Verse 9, he says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If you are familiar with the Old Testament stories of the Bible, in Genesis there is this story of these cities, these, these, these places, Sodom and Gomorrah, that they've just become so utterly corrupt that God, that God just wipes them out. And so there are, there are some prominent sins in there. Uh, there are some that get noted among them. Listen, and I think that the wrongly, one of the most common things that, or one of the most, one of the most heinous things that happen in Sodom and Gomorrah is the fact that rape is running rampant. Now, take that and just, just consider that for a minute. And consider the hashtag MeToo movement for a second. And I don't care what political aisle you sit on, but consider that here's one thing we know for sure. We may not know who is guilty and innocent. We may not be able to tell who's telling the truth in one setting or another. We may not know that because we don't know. But here's what we know for sure. Here's the things that have surfaced for sure. That there is a commonality, that there is a culture that exists where, that, and has existed for decades where men, women have been pressured to sex in the business place, in the workplace. No one can deny that. No one can deny that they've been treated differently than others. Is that fair? We may not know what this person did or this person did, or maybe this person's innocent, maybe this person, we don't know. Unless you were there, you don't know. Unless these things have already been adjudicated, we really don't have a place to stand on specific instances. But here's what we know for sure. Decades of show business, decades of government have shown that there have been pressures that have been put on women, sexually put on women, that are not the same as have been put on men. Fair? How is that a lot different than Sodom and Gomorrah? How is that different than send them out that we might have sex with them forcefully? How, are, are, we just, are we grading on a scale that says, well, we're not quite there yet? That should scare us. That there is sexual violence rampant in cities here, and that we hear that, and that that is running rampant here too. It may not be acceptable. We may all agree that's a bad thing, but it's common. Here's the thing about Sodom and Gomorrah that happens in Genesis, and the rest of the Bible uses it as examples and say, listen, you're living in a time that is equal to Sodom and Gomorrah. Jesus even says something like that. When you look at the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and the things that are going on, you compare them to modern-day America, it's not a whole lot different. The sins that they note and the things that take place are not terribly different. Here's what God is saying through Isaiah to Israel and Judah. Here's what he's saying. You're just like them, and it is by grace that I haven't wiped you out either. It is my grace to you that I haven't just burned you down like the others because you're in the same place. And listen, he's not just saying this to a secular nation like America. And I, we may have begun in Christian principles and Judeo-Christian values, but if you think this is a Christian nation today, you are misled. This is a secular nation. He's not saying this to a secular nation. He's saying this to a theocracy in Judah and Israel, a country that says they are governed by God. 
And we know that we may say that on our money, but we trust in money, even though it says trust in God, right? And let's just be honest. One nation, indivisible, under God, right? Like, like those things, we still say them, but that's not how we live. He is speaking this to a theocracy. He is speaking to them and saying, listen, you're no better. I think it would be a great posture for those of us who follow Jesus to take the posture of saying we're no better. To say, listen, we are no different. We are equally corrupt. That our our starting point is terribly corrupted. That's what God is saying to his people, his people here, speaking like a broken-hearted father, saying, I raised you, but I don't raise you to be like this. Verse 11, verse 10, excuse me. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. So listen to him call. Listen, he's saying, listen, give ear to this. Verse 11, and listen to the sin now he's going to unpack. Verse 11, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of gulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. You hear this? God is saying to the gathered people who are gathered in worship, he says this, your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. Here's who God is speaking to. And here's what he's speaking about. He's speaking to the people of God. He is speaking to people that profess to follow him. Right? Sounds like us, right? Christians. We profess to follow Jesus. True? Okay. I want to make sure we're in the same place as we move on, right? And then he describes the worship service. We're all sitting here. I can answer that one. We all go to a worship service, right? Here's what he says. When you gather together your sacrifices, your worship, your incense. Incense in the Old Testament something we don't do here. Incense in the Old Testament are, are symbolic of the praises or the prayers rising up to people. They would light incense to teach them about prayer. That as they prayed to God, they would understand that their words went up like a fragrant offering to God. He says, I can't stand it anymore. Your prayers, I can't stand. Your gatherings, your holidays, Christmas and Easter. He says, my soul hates. Let that settle in for a minute. And then just ask the question, okay, is is God pleased with us right now? And listen, we're not excluding Christ and his sacrifice and his redemption. What we're saying is people who believe are called to something different. In fact, they're called to a life that God has called us to live. So hear that in the context, not all doom and gloom, just hear that in the context of redemption. But if we don't understand where we are, we'll never figure out where we have to go. Fair? Imagine he says this, your worship songs, they drive me crazy. No, not because of your style, because of your life. Your prayers, I don't want to listen to them anymore. Easter, take that Sunday off. Imagine God said that to us. 
Imagine God was just crying out, say, listen, I wish you just wouldn't gather anymore. Because what you do is so trampled on. Here's what he says, verse 12. And I think this is the key to that verse. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling on my courts? Like who told you to do the things that you do and live the way that you live? But there's a key to this. When you come to appear before me, when we gather today for church, when we come here, when we show up on Sunday mornings, why are we coming here? What is it? And I'm not asking for you to answer out loud. Consider inside yourselves, what is it you desire to be here for? Now, we've got people all over the spectrum. We have people here that would admittedly say they're not followers of Jesus, that they're here, they're learning, they're asking questions, but they're not there yet. We have other people that are, that are followers of Jesus, maybe they're recent followers of Jesus, maybe they've been followers of Jesus for a long time but never really pressed into it. And then we have folks that have been walking with Jesus for longer than I've been alive. And we just set them in a camp of more mature believers. And there are mature believers that are young and there are immature believers that are older. That's, it's not just all based on age. But understand that we're not all in the same place here. But why are we here? And for those of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus, do we show up here to come before the Lord? Do we show up here to be in God's unique presence, a presence where people are gathered, God promises his presence is different here than it is when we are on our own. Do we come here expecting God to speak? Not me, but expecting that through his scripture, through somebody, whoever's up here, whatever we're doing, that God would speak to you. Let me just put this in modern day context. Do we show up on time ready to meet with God? Do we consider that the portion, that the, 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 the worship services, God has given us songs to sing and prayers to pray and, and his word to open up? Do we understand that from front to back that we are called to be in God's presence? Or do we show up just in time for the message, take communion and bolt right after? Because you know, after all, the Super Bowl is in four hours. <laughs> Remember our first four messages of the year? We talked about time, treasure, and talent. Do we show up here to give of our time, to carve out this space, to be in the presence of God, a presence of God, a unique means of grace that doesn't take place when we're on our own? And if you're questioning that, I'll give you some scriptures in just a minute for that. Do we show up here ready to hear and be changed? Do we show up here expecting that God will meet with us in some way? Maybe that's to convict us of sin and call us to repentance. Maybe that is to remind us of our identity in Christ and to comfort us. Maybe we brought us here for someone else. I don't know. There's lots of reasons why God gathers us together. But as we just said two weeks ago, we are incomplete without one another. We need one another. That means we need this. And church isn't just summed up by Sundays. We need the church. And this is the thing God is taking aim at. Like when you worship me, you're showing up, but you're no different Monday through Saturday. And then when you show up, your head's, here, your head's somewhere else anyhow. And you're not here to give, and you're not here to receive. You're not here for me. I don't know why you're here, he's saying. Who called you to trample on my service? That's what he says. That ought to challenge all of us. You think it's hard to hear this? Be the guy studying this for the last week and stand here and say it. And I'm just like, man, I, if the Cowboys were playing, I'd have not been here. Like, I'm guilty. I get it, right? No, not a whole lot of chance of that happening anytime soon, but hell, you know, still, right? 
let's just be honest. Like I could be sitting here listening to these words. I need them. Because we treat this so lightly. Because we just assume this is just for us. Look, we get to do with what, this what we want. God says, yeah, that's, that's not what I created at all. Being before the Lord. Worship services are about being in God's presence in ways we can't be just on our own. Most people treat church pretty commonly. That's the word profane in the Bible, by the way. Not as a holy time in the presence of God. Many Christians see church as optional in the life of a Christian or a place to go when convenient. Read Hebrews 10, 19 through 20. Read 1 Corinthians 11 all the way to the end of 12. And look how it talks about us gathering together, being interjoined with one another. Look at the blessings and curses it talks about. Look about how it calls us to be gathered together in the comfort of Christ's righteousness. Look at what it talks about as we're gathering together. Nevertheless, the first two-thirds of the Bible who speak about the worship service implicitly over and over and over and over again and write entire books like Leviticus about things regarding worship. And then God cries out. He says, why do you gather together and trample on my courts? Why? I never want to be doing something where God writes the words, my soul hates it. That's brutal. Right? We've, listened, we've read other verses even recently where God says, listen, you do this, I'm just going to quit listening to your prayers. He says the same thing here. Like, I never want to be in that place where God's like, hey man, I hear you praying, I'm out. Like, I'm done. You haven't listened to the last 25 things I've said to you. Why do I want to hear this? I never want to be in that place. God is speaking as a father, disappointed, heartbroken, angry, but calling us home. That's the key to this. This isn't just your, your, your toast, God's going to wreck us all. This is, he's a father. He wants us back. That's the point of his writing. Verse 15, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. When you spread out your hands, that's when you pray. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. And this isn't about murder. This isn't about, this is about just guilt of sin. And remember, this is an Old Testament book before Christ came. And the way they dealt with their sins is to slaughter animals on an altar and to offer up sacrifice for sin. And so there was an equation of blood and death and sin, those all tied together. And he says, listen, I no longer want to listen to your prayers because your hands are guilty with sin. The title of today, man, we just said was Religious on the Outside. Being a follower of Jesus means more than going through the motions. Being the same as everyone else most of the week, but going to church on Sundays, giving and serving doesn't make you a Christian. A life being transformed by Christ daily, and that means forever. Forever being transformed by Christ is what it means to follow Jesus. Here's a verse in Romans that speaks about what a life of worship should be. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, that your whole life would be given over to Jesus. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Your life is to be laid out and sacrificed to God. My life is to be lived as a living sacrifice to God, that everything I do exists 
to give glory to God. That's how we were created. That's how we were designed. That's our intent. That's how in Christ we are supposed to return to being. Not that we have ever been that, but we should return to the design God made that was ruined by sin. Verse 16, he says, wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes and cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Some 200 times in the Bible and about 30 times in Isaiah alone, the cause of justice comes up. Now, we have a pretty diverse church. Not only ethnically and racially, we have, there's no real one common ethnicity or dominant ethnicity. Age is pretty, pretty evenly divided. It's a younger, primarily younger church, which is different. Most churches aren't. And somehow, God has collected, put us together. And what that's done for us is there is a lot of political diversity in the room. There's a lot of socioeconomic diversity. And what's... What happens or what tends to happen in churches that, that lack this kind of diversity is they, they drift off into one side or the other, one side of the political aisle or the other. And, the, and the, the thing about the Bible is it takes aim at all of them, is that it takes aim at both sides, especially when both sides try and co-opt Jesus for their own purposes. Justice. For the conservative Christian, justice is a place that is truly, truly lacking. A place where a lot of times the conservative, right-leaning church, which we are, and, and, and gladly are, but justice is a place that is a gap. That there is not a lot of Christian churches that are standing in the gap for, for oppression and justice. Isaiah will call the people almost three millennia ago to the same thing. People that are more conservatively or more politically left and progressive tend to have another more of an eye on justice, more of an eye on oppression. But the church as a whole doesn't do much. And the church as a whole tends to push the answers outside of the church. And just as Isaiah speaks this, I want you to hear as God speaks it to Isaiah, he says, the cause to liberate the oppressed, to work for the righteousness and justice of people, to be concerned with the fatherless and the widows. Right, Our country's terrible at caring for older folks. Our church isn't any better. That's the call. Justice is not an option. It causes people to have a heart for justice. This means seeing ourselves as a blessed and mobilizing to action and sacrifice for those who are marginalized. Micah 6.8 says this. Many of you know this verse. He has told you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. That justice is the call of every follower of God. Every follower of God. Verse 18 says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become wool. Again, this whole passage, it, it takes some deep swings at people of faith. But hear this in the context. It's always coming back to returning. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be like scarlet, they can be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they can become like wool. The gospel is that in Christ, all our sins are washed away. That we are called to redemption. 
That God is always calling his wayward people to repent and return. And repent just, just means turn 180 degrees and run. Run to God. Run to Jesus. And it says, listen, if oppression and justice isn't on your mind, repent, turn, care. Live a more sacrificial life. If you're just going through the motions on Sunday mornings, he says, listen, repent. Show up here expecting to be in the presence of God, meeting with God. Whatever this means for us, it's in the context of returning. Always in the context of returning to God. 2 Chronicles 7 says this, When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land, or send pestilence among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin and heal their land. There is this if-then conditional clause given to us all throughout Scripture. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. If, if you will come and return right now, God says this, then I'll hear, right? That whole, like, I don't want to hear your prayers anymore. He says, then I'll hear, I'll hear from heaven. I'll forgive your sins. I'll heal your land. He says this in the context of us returning to him, laying down whatever stands in between us and him and saying, listen, we'll set all that aside for the sake of the gospel. Verse 19, it says, if you're willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Listen, the God of the Old Testament is no different than the God of the New Testament. They're not one or two separate things. There is a point in time. There's a point in time where God says, like, there's the, like it's too late over here. Maybe too late for you. Maybe too late for everybody. Maybe whatever. But he says, listen, repent now. Come back now. Don't wait and miss an opportunity. Verse 21, how the faithful city has become a whore. She who was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in her, but are now murderers. He calls for the once godly who are now sinful to return. Listen, this, the news has been saturated with this. And we talk about justice and we talk about uh, liberating the oppressed. And our news media has been filled for the last week with, with states passing abortion laws, things that are taking place. And listen, it, I don't know how we can say we care about one thing. Oh, we're going to ca care about the migrant or we're going to care about the world. Or we're going to care about this and how we can miss a concern for the unborn. How is it that 50% of the states in America, it's illegal to stick a needle in a guy's arm who's been convicted of murder and put them to death, but that you can have abortions now up until the time of birth? Mother Teresa, in her famous words, says, listen, a nation that kills its own in the womb has lost its soul. And when we gather and we hear something like this, here's what we tend to do. Our reaction is, they're really bad. Let's vote differently. Let's get a different president. Let's back this one again. Or whatever, whatever the answer is, no, it starts here. There is no political solution to a spiritual problem. Our problem is a spiritual problem. It starts with us, not them, us. We need a spiritual solution to a problem that plagues our entire country. Verse 22, it says this, your silver has become dross and your best wine mixed with water. Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. Nobody swings back to that fatherless, 
The widow's cause does not come to them. Listen, as he speaks to justice, we have to see this, and this hits both sides of the aisle, if you will. This hits all of us, that we all have holes in our game. But here's what he talks about. He talks about a watered-down message. When the gospel is watered down by the sin of Christians and the religion practiced by Christians is void of justice, God proclaims it useless and impotent. When our sin and our hypocrisy get in the way of the gospel, the gospel, our gospel, not God's gospel, our gospel becomes impotent and useless. Revelation 3, that same passage says this, I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you're lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich and I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that your wretched pity will pour blind and naked, the part I just read. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him. This, this passage is written to a church. We often hear this. People that are evangelists or like to share their faith, they'll often use this verse. It says, listen, God, you know, Jesus stands at the door knocking, and if you let him in, and they use this in the context of evangelism, this is written to the church. This is written to a church 1,900 years ago. And he says, you're neither hot nor cold. You kind of look like the community around you, but you do a couple different things, but you're really not on fire for God either. You're, you're lukewarm. He says, and that's so disgusting, I'd rather vomit you out of my mouth. But repent, he says. But return. I stand, and listen, you've got to picture Jesus like he's outside the door of the church, not the lost. He says, I stand at the door and knock, and if you'll let me in, I will come in and eat with you. I will come in and fellowship you. I'll be your God again. I'm going I'm to just kind of pause right there, and we will pick up next week. We're already over time in our introduction to Isaiah. But let me, let me just say this. As we look to Isaiah, not all of it is this heavy. <laughs> but this isn't the worst. So how do we hear this? What do we do with this? We showed up this morning thinking, man, if I just kind of like show up for like 90 minutes, I can go home, we can watch the game, I got pizza, I got this. What do we do with this? As we prepare for Isaiah, let me just suggest this. Let's quit thinking the problem's everything else. Problem's us. We need repentance. Not everybody else out there. They, they do too, don't get me wrong. Like the world's going crazy in lots of ways. But it's not going to change unless we change first. Because currently what the vast majority of churches in America, including ours, have is a watered-down gospel. He'll go on to say this, your silver is like filled with dross again, and your wine is, your best wine's been all watered down. And you can just imagine those images with you, and just take that and pour that into the gospel and say, listen, this powerful message of a God who loves you and is calling you back to him and is desiring to redeem you and gave his only son for you, and, and that Jesus, who died on the cross to give his life for you, all those things are there if you'll just come to him and that message, that message is so powerful and so filled with this amazing, abundant love of God for us, that message can't be watered down. It gets watered down when we miss the mark. 
You want to see the fatherless cared for? We need to not miss the mark. You want to see abortion go away? We need to stop missing the mark. You can't vote in the fix. It's got to happen here. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray that this first message, as crazy hard as it is, as challenging as it was, even this morning, just saying, God, okay, what would you, what would you have me say? How should I say it? Here's what we need to hear, Jesus. We, your church, need to repent. We need to stop saying everything is out there. We need to repent and lead them to you. That we would be a light to the world. Let us start with our worship service. Let us, when we gather together here, may it be a moment of holiness. May it be a a place that we come in and we set down everything else and we laugh and joke about the Super Bowl. We do it every week. We come in here and our minds are elsewhere. We show up when it's convenient. God, forgive us. You have called and you said, come before me. When you gather together, come before me. Let, let this be time in your presence. You promised that where two or more are gathered, you do something unique. So we're here and we're gathered and we're asking for your presence. Do something special for us, please. Forgive us for treating this profanely. May you never say, I hate your prayers. May you never say, you just skip Easter. It's just not worth it. May we repent and return to you, causing the world to see you, not us. Jesus, let us get out of the way. Your grace is sufficient. We love you.